Set the Table. I am John. With me, as always, is Jack, and this is Episode 8, Player Parts, Player Types Part 2. Strong start there. Um, audio listeners, never fear. Uh, YouTube viewers, we are uh, not streaming video today um, due to some technical limitations. But... Uh, we are here to talk about player types in tabletop role-playing games, um, and so that's what we're going to do. Uh, we have gotten the habit of doing this thing where we talk about what we've played in the past two weeks, so do you want to go first? Um, yeah, so I, I played my 5e game. Um, I am playing a Smurf Neblin um, bard. I'm kind of the de facto party leader, uh, and she was up to her regular hijinks of terrifying people and trying to double cross other NPCs. And uh, I'm just, I'm just waiting for my DM to get sick of her noise and just mm-hmm. kill it. Um, because every time he he assigns us a task, or um, we're basically working for the town guard. Um, but my character would really like to just double cross the town guard uh, and start her own like criminal syndicate. Oh, nice! Neutral evil character, right? Yeah. Uh, so that's kind of what she's been after, and the town guard wants us to start up a fighters guild uh, to train up more fighters who might potentially be town guardsmen. So my character is taking oh. that as an invitation to recruit a brute squad. She could use the the Fighters Guild as a front for her thievery. Yes, that's that's kind of her goal. That sounds cool. So we'll we'll see how that plays out, or if my DM is gonna has other designs for for the party, and we uh, we go in a different direction. But that's that's where she's headed right now. Cool. Looking so forward to hearing uh, hearing what happens with that. Uh, we finally got to play our main game. Um, it was like four sessions, I think, where we were playing alt game, one shot, alt game, whatever we could. Uh, but we finally got everybody together, and the party was uh, awoken by the tremors of distant quakes and ran outside to see a pillar of black smoke rising far, far on the horizon. Um, Deciding not to investigate that and sticking to current tasks at the moment, they investigated an abandoned elvish fort, and as per their norm, didn't learn a whole lot about it before they decided to go there. Um, So they don't have a whole lot of history about the fort. Um, They leveled up their magical quest artifact items, which are these homebrewed items that I've done for each of them that have their own... Uh, like XP requirement for the gear. So like the druid in my party, Katrana, it, she has a item called the Totem of the Beast Walker, uh, which is a left glove slot magical fist weapon slash item that is basically a bear paw adorned with uh, gems and stitching and feathers and that sort of thing. Uh, and the effects of that let her uh, basically 
gave her the beast spells ability, letting her cast spells while wild-shaped very early. And so as that item, as she wild-shapes and casts spells while wild-shaped, um, each time she does that, she gets an XP for the item, and when the item reaches certain XP thresholds, it does more things. Um, so everybody in my party has one of those. Uh, one player is still on their quest to get it. Um, but those are a super fun thing that I've been doing. Uh, they fought some invisible stalkers, found some mithril loot, and uh, took a rest in a tiny hut cast within a temple of Asha, which is the goddess of life and um, time and nature. Uh, she's basically the Earth Mother in my world, and two of the PCs worship her. So uh, it was good. It was a really good session. A lot of, a lot of sort of juicy bits of world-building lore in there, and I am just excited every session that we draw closer and closer to what will be the end of um, our Arc 1 campaign, which we've been, it'll be two years for us this June. So I'm kind of trying to wrap Arc 1 up so that we can play Arc 2, which I've started teasing. Whenever anybody rolls a nat 20, they get a, a guess. They get to pick a letter in a little hangman game that I drew in Roll 20 where I will reveal the title of Arc 2. Um, so that's been fun. When I revealed that, everybody got super excited and wanted to know what was going on. So my group likes puzzles and likes that sort of leading on mystery a little bit. Um, but very good, very excited. A lot of good stuff. Very cool. Uh, so... This is episode 8. Uh, we're talking player types part 2. Um, last episode we talked about alignment and talked about... Uh, we spent a little while talking about evil characters and about decision making and how, or at least maybe one way as a DM, that you'll be able to tell more about your players and sort of learn how to DM for the group specifically is identifying what kind of player they are. Uh, and so we've we've talked about problem players before. Episode three was largely about problem players. Um, <clears throat> and we decided to do that first because handling those players that will break the game is a little bit more important than learning more about your players psychologically so that you can improve the game. Um, if you have a problem player making the game bad, you want to bring the game back to a good spot. But once you've got a good game going, you want to look for ways to make your game great and uh, learning a little bit more about what sort of players you have at your table can help you design encounters that make them feel epic and ways to include them and and avoid other trouble so um, I think that this is going to be good I think this will be a good discussion let's identify really quick because we uh, we disagree on things from time to time uh, what is what is a player type when we talk about a player type. You want me to go first? Yeah, yeah. So for me, um, I like to categorize my players based on their style, like the, the style of play that they engage in and kind of what they're trying to 
get out of the game? Like, what what is going to be entertaining for them as we play the game? Okay. Okay. Um, so it's the the category. I categorize them so that I can figure out what they're after as a player, and as a DM, then I can try and provide that that stimulus. Okay. Um, I, I wrote out a thing that I probably don't need to read, but, uh, I, I agree. Uh, and I think that in talking about player types, a player type should be a, uh, non-judgmental label applied to how someone typically role plays their characters. Um, and so we've talked before, uh, we've used the terms, but haven't talked about it a lot, but we've said things like wallflower, alpha gamer, min maxer. Um, and we've got a list that we'll go down and, and talk about. Before all of that, I I want to note that everything that we are going to say and talk about is gleaned from our personal observations and experiences and are all generalizations about sets of behaviors that are loosely accepted by gaming communities and, and like types of players that are accepted, the, the terminology. Uh, all of this is sprinkled with our opinions, of course, um, and you shouldn't use anything that we talk about or any information learned to, to shame people or make them feel bad about what kind of player they are or drastically change how you run your games. Because if everyone at your table is already having fun, you probably don't need to make a whole lot of changes. Um, there are positives and negatives to each player type. Um, and like any issue with like people, we should try to treat people with you know respect and compassion and understanding. So, see, um, you you went in a whole different direction. I was gonna joke around and go, why not be judgmental? That's that's the whole point of judging and categorizing is. But I'm I'm I was just doing it as a joke, as a lark. But you went down the very stern, serious route. Well, I, I just didn't want anybody to hear like, oh, method actors make the best players so i'm only gonna find a group of people who are method actors and if someone's not talking enough i'm gonna kick them out of my group like i i just don't want someone to misuse the information well well here's here's again let me here's the joke on someone who's gonna do that that these are archetypes of players and there there's very rarely ever one person who is exactly one thing like Oh, sure. You're going to, it's a spectrum. Like today, I'm much more of a method actor, um, but I get into a different kind of game or I get into a game setting and all of a sudden I turn into the tactician. Like just because we are explaining these types of players, um, it is uh, foolish and short sighted to say that one person fits in one mold and is constantly that mold throughout their entire gaming uh, career. Yes. Uh, even within the same game, even within the same player character, uh, people will shift from from one of these to the other. It's very fluid. Even within the same session I've seen. Oh, gosh, yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Um, so, that all being said, uh, I, I started with our first one, Method Actors. Oh, thank you, because that's me. <laughs> I was going to say, you identified as this last week, so I'm going to let you uh, take the head on this one. You got the template there? I do. All right, well, go Let's ahead. See. Oh, there, there it is. Uh, so why is it called the method actor? So That one might, it might be a little self-explanatory, but... Well, I don't know. I mean, 
there are you're go, the go, theater go ahead, guy. explain it so so an actor and and if i get it wrong you've got to tell me because again you're the theater guy and and i'm not i that was high school theater does not count but a a method actor assumes the personality and characteristics of the character they are playing right so if you read any kind of hollywood biographies or you follow entertainment um news or or media you'll hear that you know so and so is a method actor and i can't name a method actor off the top of my head but um they're the folks like actors that'll do their own stunts they they get into character and then they spend their time as that person is that okay close enough yeah yeah people okay. who uh, maybe a more lay a layman version of that definition would be people who really get into role playing sure yeah your method actors are the folks that are at the table to try to think and be and talk and feel like someone else mm -hmm. um which and I, i'm gonna jump in just because you mentioned it not a, more than a moment ago since this is a spectrum anybody who plays D D has you know, at least 1% method actor in them. Um, yeah, 1%. I think, right, you want to sit down at a table and pretend to be somebody else. So you're you're doing that at least in action, if nothing well, else. Unless you, unless you pick an, a character archetype that matches your real-life personality, right? Well, even then, your character may have different motivations and motivations and, and that kind of stuff but but i've seen that too and, and we'll talk about those folks a little bit later on um but yeah your your method actor is much more they're about the character and getting to the the root cause of the character's feelings and emotions and motivations um and so, that's that's the method so if i'm dming why is it a good thing that you, someone who identifies as a method actor, is at my table? What are the pros of being a method actor? The pros of the method actor is that they are going to give you a much more immersive game. Um, and, and yeah, so I'll, we'll stick with pros, right? They're going to give you a much more immersive game. They If they're playing a dwarf... Um, Right, they may fake a Scottish accent because, for whatever reason, most dwarves are thought to be Scottish or, or, or that kind of you know, with the the Irish brogue or that kind of thing. Um, they're gonna pick actions and interact with NPCs based on their character's archetype. So, if I, like I said, I'm playing a a Snurf Neblin bard and she's mean and she is from the Underdark, where she was an accountant in a drow noble house. <laughs> so um, she's sassy, and she's sharp, and she threatens people. Uh, and sometimes she makes good on those threats, and she scares the party members. Um, she scares the other players, and she, sometimes she even scares me, because it's like, in real life, I would never skin someone else to make footwear. Right, right. But but my character thinks that's a perfectly good response to being double-crossed. You have to have a, a pretty high degree of 
self-regulation to not fall into that character too hard. Yes, yes. So that's that's the pro. You get a much more immersive experience. You get a much more true to canon or true to um, the game world, right? Because the method actor has done lots of research to figure out why uh, Snurf Neblins are employed by the drow and we've read lots and lots about Menzo Berenzon and Chad Nazad and all those other places. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course I'm, I'm a method actor, so I'm exper- I'm, I'm expressing my, my method, right? This is how I do what I, what I do. Right. Um, but let's see here. I'm trying to, I'm trying to think of other pros. So what do you think are the pros? That's the big one is the immersion and the story connectivity and the canon connectivity. Yeah, I think people who are trying to roleplay a character that really fits in the world make for a better experience anyway. Mm-hmm. I think maybe... I think at least half of my group is at least half method actor. So I have people who you know, roleplay their characters fairly well and are interested in they're they're interested in the world especially as somebody who likes to homebrew a lot because i'm gonna just keep talking about that uh they're interested in the world that i've created and uh reflect on their backstories and make decisions based around information that is available to them which sounds very basic i guess um, but I like that because some people who sit down to play D and D don't really necessarily care a whole lot. They just want to feel heroic and slay a dragon. They don't care that their father knows this elf in a faraway town who was friends with a map maker and hit a stat. Like they just don't, you know. A compelling story is perhaps more compelling to a method actor than somebody else so i i appreciate having them at my table okay so what are the what's the downside um i think sometimes people can get carried away and this uh i think when method actor players do this they start to sway from method actor to spotlight hog and if they are really engaged with something that's going on or you are dming a a portion of their personal quest and they are consuming lots of of table time perhaps taking it away from other players um that it i don't think it happens a whole lot but uh it's something to be aware of um and i think maybe another thing that makes it a little tricky as a dm is sometimes those players who you expect to be doing things in character will say something and then be like oh no i i I didn't say that in character and you're like well okay not like you but all right um (laughs) so sometimes smart method actor players may weasel around something sometimes but i'm also not a dm who is okay everything you say is is a thing that you're doing in game um so I'm I'm comfortable with that, and I trust my players. But in a newer group or a lesser well-established group, you might run into that. Okay. 
Um, I don't know. Do you think there's anything else glaringly? Sure. So, so here's, here's one that I that I have run into a couple times as a player, is that the party and the story and the adventure need to go in a certain way, and my character just wouldn't do that. Oh, okay. So I'm thinking about my, um, I I got brought into a game as as a take over so i took over a seat from a player who had to leave um and they were like oh you can bring in your own character so i again i'm a method actor right so i wrote a big backstory had had all sorts of stuff going on in my life and then uh had a dimension door opened underneath me right and all of a sudden i'm in this new world with new people uh and uh as a method actor character my character wants to go home right that's the like yep you know i was fighting i was fighting devils uh trying to defend our our forge for moradin as a dwarven cleric they opened this dimension door underneath my feet and boom here i am in barovia was a curse of strahd um here i am in barovia and i don't know how to get home and you know, I'm feeling guilty that I left my comrades in battle and I'm trying to get back there because, you know, oh shit, now it's a day later. I don't even know if they're alive anymore. Now it's a week later. And so like he he I eventually I I I didn't have to be spoken to by the DM. Um uh, I having DM'd myself, I started to pick up on the on the cues from the other players that like, oh yeah, the dwarf's gonna rush us along. It's like no, not today. You know what? That battle's over. It's been a month. Um, my comrades are e- either made it through and they're alive, or they're dead, and they don't know what happened to me. They're probably feasting my death as we speak. So I'm going to settle down and, and stop being such a jackass. But that was a con. Like my 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 player would be doing this. My player would be having these um, these things. And, and then the other thing too is a DM. We, we talked a little bit about evil players, but I, I've thrown my poor DM for a loop um, by not f- actually fighting the adversary, but again, trying to, like oh, like we were yeah. talking about, like trying to double cross people or try to, it's like, okay, you have to go in and free these slaves. Why? The, the, the bad guys are doing this thing the town wants us to have the bad guys stop doing the thing, smuggling. Um, so if we just make a deal with the bad guys to smuggle a different route or to smuggle to a different location, like instead of going to Port Naranzaru, we get them to go to Kalimshan, problem solved, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess so, right? <laughs> and, and, the, and the DM's going, um, well, not really, because if I look in the module... <laughs> <laughs> See, it's another another case against modules. You can't have people play the characters that they really want to play. We, I mean, we made it work. We still made it work. There were yes. a couple of NPCs we just didn't have access to. We changed the nature of the game based on the number, based on the method actor who played his character. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's that's that con. Um, and then the other con. What? Uh, oh, go ahead. 
it's <clears throat> I don't know necessarily it's a con so much as it's a complication, but I'm just quibbling, so go ahead. Yeah, no, a complicate it, it could but it, it, if it's a complication that causes problems in the game, it's a con. Yes. If it's a complication that makes your DM work a little bit harder and he and she, he or she is okay with that, then it's a complication. Um, but if you do that to your DM every two weeks, they're gonna get sick of you. <laughs> Maybe most DMs would, but anyway. Yeah. The other con is situational, um, and I know we're going to have a show later that talks about player death, mm -hmm. uh, but method actors hate losing characters. Hate it, right? Because they've invested all this time and energy, and, and right? I'm, I'm self-identify, hey, hi, I'm Jack, and I'm, I'm a method actor. Uh, hi jack hi uh so you know i i rarely create a 5e or pathfinder or starfinder character that doesn't have at least five to seven pages of backstory right okay so i i do all of that work i get into the game and three sessions in i botch a poison saving throw and i'm dead yeah it's, it's difficult to let well, go of those characters. You still have the characters, so you could use it at a different table, different game, different time period. Sure. Yep. No, I, I totally do that. I, I have a whole three-ring binder full of dead characters who are... Um, <laughs> the character graveyard. Oh, it's like from Darkest Dungeon. That's awesome. No. Not, not, they're not really dead, right? They, I'm, right. I'm using the DCC roll the body mechanic. Like, somebody's going to wander by this this corpse in the trash and oh my god he's breathing uh or um yeah that will ret do a little bit of retcon because i'm not playing with the same people or i'm not playing in the same module and it's like oh yeah you died in the jungles outside of port naranzaru nah i got lost and i get picked up by a pirate ship and we sailed away kind of thing <laughs> so so that's i mean that's that can be a con um again it's situational right that that character, that player loses that character. It can be very emotional. Mm -hmm. You just have to be ready for it as a DM. Yeah. And and like you said, we will have a future episode talking all about player death. Um, character so, death. Yes, character death. Player death is probably not uh, a good topic for this podcast. Uh, you Beyond should... my scope to deal with player death. Yep. Other than uh, to say, I'm sorry for your loss and... Seek a grief counselor. Yeah, we'll say um, a prayer. <clears throat> so, uh, so method actors. I think that sums it up for now. Sure. We can always jump back to it if we have other thoughts. But for a new DM or for a DM looking to figure some stuff out, I think we uh, we gave a good little bit of info there. Uh, the... yeah, and I think the the thing that we haven't we, I mean we talked about 5e and Pathfinder and Star well, I mentioned Pathfinder and Starfinder um, but there are games again we, we're talking about player types there are role play game systems that are better for method actors than they are for uh, the other folks we'll talk about right yes. Uh, yeah, and so, I think we I think we covered uh, some of that in the modules episode, where yeah. we we kind of identified systems that were more RP heavy, 
um, or more relationship and, and story heavy. Uh, so if you are a player looking for a game that matches your player type, uh, head on over and check out, what was that, episode two was modules? Oh! Uh, Maybe three? Was it two or four? Two or four. I think it was we go. four, because you talked about, no, we did modules for three, you did homebrew for four. There we go. But just off the top of my head, I'm thinking Blue Rose, um, for, yeah. for method actors, Blue Rose would be good. Mm-hmm. Uh, 5e, I mean, 5e fits kind of everywhere. Well, so uh, method actors kind of fit everywhere. And method actors kind of fit everywhere. You know, I, if, I if think you the, want the RP game, you'll bring it to the table regardless of what you're doing there. Right. Sometimes it's fun to be a method actor playing, like, Settlers of Catan or other board games. And I'm I'm going to settle all of the land. Give me your sheeps. Yes. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, method actors. Uh, second player type that we want to talk about are tacticians. Um, they are so named for their preference to be tactical and think situations out uh, a lot. Um, I, I DM from a very tactical standpoint, I think. Um, and we, we haven't mentioned at all that there are dm types because i don't i don't know that there are because you kind of have to do a little bit of everything as a dm um but i from the dm perspective i would identify as a tactical dm um i i don't like there to be things in my sessions that don't have multiple solutions or other ways to generate information about things. Um, and I, I'm thinking tactically both in and out of combat. So my party is trying to, uh, they're waiting on a translation for some journals that have something to do with an event called the Lightless Veil. Um, and for for me as the DM, there are there have been lots of small clues here and there, and things that will line up once they have a little bit more information. But I I like to do lots of that. Okay, there's four or five pieces to this. Let's sprinkle them out and give them to them at different times and let them see how to do it. It would be like looking at a chessboard and you can't see squares like A2 through 6 through like C2 through 6. Like those squares are just blacked out. So you're playing a, a chess game without being able to see all of the board. Um, and I, I really like thinking about DMing like that. Um, from the player side... Yeah, what about the player? <clears throat> uh, I think tactical players enjoy puzzles and breaking down situations. Um, I've got one player who is is very, very strongly puzzle-oriented. 
um, and he is playing a um, a rogue monk multi-class so he's very like I can move a little bit farther and if I'm behind them and have an ally there then I get my advantage and my sneak attack so tactical players like having the dials that they can twist they like having resources that they can manage and calculate almost the most effective or efficient way to to use their resource or to um, or to solve a, a solution. Do you have anything you want to add to defining tactician players? So, so I think I think you stayed away from combat. So I'll throw out combat. These are the folks that want uh, grids on the table with line of sight indicators and where's my miniature and which way am I facing and uh, what's the fire rate of my 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 weapon and yeah these are the folks that are um, very focused on tactical situations what these are the, the you know what's the turn order who's acting first that that's that's these folks mm -hmm. I did not I did veer away from combat but you're right that is also yeah. them yep yeah, so yeah, if you've got a lot of tacticians at your table, uh, you've got a dry erase hex board or a dry erase uh, mat with with uh, markers and miniatures and rulers and yeah, yep. Or you're in same thing in roll twenty. Like people are measuring. I I was doing it the other night. Right? I put my tactician's head on and I had my little ruler out to see can I do a a cloud of daggers there? Oh yes, I can. They're within five. You know they're with the, at the edge of my spell, so totally works. But yeah, that's that tactical tactician. Sure. Um, I think the pros of the tactician are that you, as a DM, you can design things that are tricky or make puzzles that are difficult. Uh, if you have a player at the table who likes solving stuff like that, like solving an encounter, um then that is an easy way to make them have a good time at the table is give them a little bit uh, a little bit to work with so you're besieging a, a goblin village you're in the woods at the bottom of a 30 foot or so hill and at the top of the hill there is your uh your village you've got a you know a stick wall there and beyond there stick and mud huts and you've got, uh, you know, the sun is setting. So if you were to approach from this side versus that side, you might catch some unawares or get a small bonus to your stealth or or perception. Except if you really, if you have a hardcore tactician, they've already stopped you four times, right? So you said thirty. Is that thirty feet exactly, or thirty-one feet? And how thick is that stick wall? Is it one layer of sticks? Is it sticks and reeds tied together with rope? Like it's it's just sticks. Uh, there are a few joints that are are reinforced with mud and no. And, I, I, I'm teasing you. I'm 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 poking. I'm showing. I'm starting to kind of show the cons of the tactician, right? Yes. Uh, from well, from yes that. Yes so, so I don't. I actually don't. Um, 
I shouldn't say I don't like tacticians, um, but I, I limit tacticians based on reality, which we'll talk about when we get to the historian. Um, but like, it's a 30-ish foot high hill. Well, is it exactly 30? It's like, I don't know. Do you have a, a 50 foot rope you can use to measure it? And are you going to break stealth right. to measure the hill? Right. Uh, no, no, I'm not. Okay, so you eyeball it and you think it's about 30. And it looks like there's a stick fence up there. Well, how how many layers of sticks and how deep is it? Can't really tell. You can kind of see one layer of sticks right now. And the, the sun's setting. Well, how many minutes until the sun is all the way down? It's like, so... Do, do in you your, have a druid or a ranger? Somebody make a nature check. Somebody right? make a nature check. Ooh, you got a 10 on that nature check. So, eh, maybe a half hour? Like... That's that's the that that's where you get into your con for your tacticians because they're going to start to ask for uh, very specific details that might not be readily apparent uh, or, or in the situation, or that might not super be necessary because it, whether it's thirty feet or thirty-one feet, when you say I want to move up to the top of the hill and and do a perception check. Your, your your DM will say, all right, well, you move to the top of the hill and ro roll your perception, or you move to the top of the hill and uh, your movement runs out and you're not quiet at the top. You'll have to wait until next turn. Like, right. It, tacticians can slow the game down a little bit, asking for stuff that they could have found out if they just did the action in the first place. Sure. Um, and uh, while we are sort of swaying into cons here, one of the dangers is that tacticians uh, can can get close. They walk that thin line between tactician and metagamer. Um, I've got a, a player in my group who is very well read on the 5e core books. So if I present, um, I don't know, if I presented a, a Bahir to the group, um, I actually am not sure if that's a, a core book or not. Um, at any rate, if I present some monster like a Bahir to the group, um, that player likely knows that they're immune to lightning damage, um, but he does a very good job of not metagaming and would still do that. Um, back when he was playing his, his Tiefling Barbarian, he... Uh, used a hellish rebuke on a creature that he knew was immune to fire or resistant to fire um, because he was like, well, my character doesn't know that, so I would still do it, um, which is really nice. It's nice to have honest players like that. But if you've got that tactician who is, is it, is it 30 feet or 31 feet? Because if I throw my dagger, if I move 20 feet and throw... If it's 11 feet, I'm at disadvantage, so I need to know so that I can have advantage for it. Like, But I'm, but I'm throwing downhill, and you said it was a 4.7% grade, so if I do the physics... Yeah. yeah. It's like, no! I, ah, you're if, killing me! If you want that, go play, what, Original Traveler? Original Traveler, or yes. T5. has lots of physics in it. Yes. There lots are, again, there are systems that will cater more to the type of player. Um, we've done the systems talk, so I'm trying to keep us away from that a little nope, bit. That's fine. Um, but mentioning um, one or two are, is, is okay. And, and your tacticians, in addition to being a metagamer, sometimes those are your rules lawyer. 
right? Oh, yeah, yep. Yeah, we can do rules lawyer next. So, although I think the rules lawyer kind of, if that's one of those that people will uh, phase into and phase out of. Like, when they're trying to do something <laughs> and the rules support what they're trying to do, man, they, wait, that's a bonus action, and I get to do a bonus action and a move and a full action and blah, blah, yeah, okay, fine, do it. Um but then when it's like, wait a minute, the bad guy's going to get a – you didn't disengage. The bad guy gets an attack of opportunity. Oh, but it's dark. Doesn't he get it with disadvantage? <laughs> it's like, wait a minute. Yes. Are you the day? Are you the DM or am I? Who's – who's – wait, you were, you were just hitting me with that rule book and all of a sudden you can't find it? <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, um, the rules – so – so the rules lawyer is somebody who that's called that because they will stand up at your table and say, wait, I object. Um, they can be good. All, all of these have good and bads. Uh, it can be I nice. Mean, the, I, I love having a rules lawyer at the table because then I don't have to be very, I mean, yes, I have to be up to speed on the rules as a DM, but it's hard to keep every single rule active in your head oh, of uh, and, and when you skip one like disengage and and um or concentration spells it's like okay i punched yeah. that guy oh wait he's casting a concentration spell he's supposed to make saving throw that kind of thing um they're nice to have at the <laughs> table uh they get annoying uh when they make everybody play by the letter of the law all the time because that slows your game down and and creates group tension. Like the, right. the DM is the agreed upon arbiter of the rules. So even if it's not in the rule book, and the DM says it, that's what it is at your table. Right. Um, and having somebody there arguing it doesn't help. I so I had I I rules lawyer a lot of the time when we're playing board games. Um, I'm the DM for most of the tabletop games that I play, which is fortunate because I rules lawyer when I play tabletop games too. Um, I had to turn it off at one point when one of my buddies was running the alt game because uh, dark mantles do need to maintain concentration on their darkness spell. Uh, we won the fight, but mechanically there were some, some errors, but I didn't want to rules lawyer it because I am, I try not to do that. Did like, people have fun? That's the question, right? Yes. Yeah. No, it was a good session. That's yes. You're right. Exactly. That's what matters. We all had fun. It was a good session. If I had died from it, I probably would have said something. Sure. But, but it it was all good. Um, and I we covered cons of rules lawyers uh, slowing games down, um, creating tension tension and issues with group dynamics um sometimes the dm is also like for for i i i don't want to say that i fudge a lot of things but there are things that i will adjust a lot per situations and if if somebody was a rules lawyer at my table and and really wanted to to mess with the game they could do it constantly because i I fudge little things here and there and make stuff up because it's my own universe and I can do that. Um, sure. So as a, a as a DM, if you have somebody like that at your table, uh, it can be a little harder to homebrew 
and a little harder to follow rule of cool. Um, but they they can be useful. Yeah, you just have to. I mean, it goes back to what we said in episode probably episode two is. Open communication with your players is the easiest way to solve a lot of these problems. If you have someone who is rules lawyering and that is slowing the game down or other people are starting to get, to get tense about that, you can just take them. It's like, hey, let's take a walk for a minute. Or can you join me in a private sub sub room in Discord? Man, you like I get it. You, you know the rule book cold and everyone's super impressed with your rules knowledge but people aren't you, you're like slowing the game down like help us out help a brother out mm -hmm. yep and then if they're like nope it, it's not fun unless everyone's playing 100% of the rules the right way then you're like eh. I mean that's why we don't play Monopoly anymore right yes because well, I found one of the, reasons. the rule. I found the rule that said houses and and hotels have to be built in a certain way, and they're a finite resource, and you don't have to build hotels. So as long as you build four houses in the proper order and just stop, you basically log jam everybody else who's trying to build houses and hotels, yeah. and you make the game over quickly because people are like. Either buy a hotel or I'm going to I don't playing. want to play anymore. <laughs> I'm not buying a hotel, so you forfeit and I win. <laughs> yep. Which is why Monopoly is not my favorite game. But anyway, that's that's rules lowering. Do we want to move on? Yeah, yeah. Um, the next one is the Wallflower. Um, I'll jump on this one because I have run games yeah. for lots yeah. of new people. You, you, you jump on that. I'll just wait over here and... And, and I'll come maybe later. <laughs> okay, you be our our model. Um, I yeah, I, I've DM'd a lot of new groups, and uh, a wallflower is somebody who tends to hang out on the sidelines and doesn't engage in the role play quite as much, and doesn't add to group. Well, so I'm. I make it sound like they're a non-participant, um, but they are someone who doesn't want the spotlight necessarily. Um, they're okay with other players always talking to the town guard or that one mayor or your quest giver. Um, they're okay being a supporting character. Uh, they are called wallflowers because that's a, it's a saying from... A long time back i i'm not 100 percent positive on that actually where wallflower comes from it's yeah. from um social situations back when humans used to meet with each other like at dances and stuff and they would be the people along the wall next to the flowers next to the flowers okay or they would be like flowers hanging on the wall okay there you go um wallflowers are are they can be good um, it's nice to have people who are willing to share the the spotlight. So, like, ideally, right, we talked about a spectrum, and I, I, I'm going to take it a step farther um, visually than a spectrum, because I, I hear spectrum and I think, uh, like, bell curve. Um, I am imagining all of these player types as 
rings in a concentric Venn diagram where you've got several layers of overlap here and there. Um, and like you said, people sort of sway in and out of these uh, over time and even mid-session. So having people not volunteer, but take a step back to be the wallflower um, can, be, can be good. Uh, it's a good way for a player to be if there are other players' personal quests going on, or if you're the if you're the barbarian and you're in a wizard's tower and they're trying to have a conversation about alchemical reagents and you're sitting by the fire, uh, yeah, I, I, I poke the fire, put log on fire, poke fire. Um, it's okay to, to sort of take a back seat. Um, cons of wallflowers would be that they tend to be quieter. Uh, they may not engage quite as much. And this is where, as a DM, it can help to either know the player um, or talk to the player and get to know them and find out if that is, hey, I'm afraid to roleplay, I don't want people to pick on me, or I'm just generally socially anxious and I'm still warming up to this group or this situation or whatnot. Um, it could be I'm a new player and I'm not confident in all the things that I can do or or what I could or should be doing. Um, Callie was that way when we started, uh, when she joined the group. Um, this is her first tabletop roleplay game experience for, for sort of longer term, and she was definitely a wallflower at the start. Um, still tends to wallflower a bit. I'm, I've been trying to do... I've been trying to DM around that a little bit, so adding places that are or would be interesting to her character, or adding random encounters that are uh, nature checks so that she can step up and ask about that plant and, and talk about that. Um, I think wallflowers are probably... I think out of the list that we have, wallflowers are probably the trickiest thing to deal with as a DM. Because sometimes somebody's just having a bad day and they just want to hang out. And other times it's a long-running issue that is deeply rooted in anxiety. And that is something that you can sort of try to help with. But, um, you know, ultimately the impact of that is out... The, not the... The cause of that is outside of the table. So um, I think DMs have a lot of... Maybe not a lot, but you have a little bit more work with a wallflower figuring out, do I do more to draw them in? Do I let them sort of sit back and as long as they're having fun, that's okay? Are other people at the group pressuring them to, to engage or are other people at the group disregarding them because they don't engage? Um, I, I think wallflowers add the most layers of of complication, I guess. And I don't like to call it complicated, but um, if you identify that you've got a wallflower at your table, think about it a little bit and be mindful how you're DMing that. Yeah, I mean, that's the, 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 the cons. I'm trying to think of the pros for a wallflower. Um, 
like a hardcore wallflower is is difficult to deal with. It it really is. I mean, there there are times when it's good that a player kind of assumes the wallflower role because it's not their story at this time. Uh, right. They, they're they're not trying. They're trying to not hog the, the spotlight. They're trying to give other people a chance. So they, they kind of assume the wallflower mantle. Right. Um, but the but the person who is a perennial keep using the flower metaphors here. Right. <laughs> uh, perennial wallflower um, drawing them in can be challenging. Um, I think one of the things that has not worked well for me in the past is making the making giving that person the role like the pin or the the catch or like like you were saying hey we found this the you know the druid is the wallflower and we found this weird plant and we've got to figure out what's what what the deal is uh if that wallflower is not ready to bloom and you put them in that role where the party's depending on them you can create more anxiety and tension mm-hmm. uh, accidentally, right? It's like, oh, you know, the 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 cleric character, the cleric's always kind of in the back, and and she's healing people, and that's really cool. But now, you know, wow, there's this religious symbol. Hey, cleric, come on up here and tell us about this. And the cleric's like, um, yeah, it's it's a religious symbol. Roll some dice. My character explains whatever it is to the you. You're not gonna trying to put the spotlight just just like hey spotlight boom uh that's a bad strategy that, that will cause your wallflower to wilt yes yeah more flower metaphors perfect yeah yeah um there is research and part of my research in my uh college experience was on tabletop role-playing games and social anxiety uh and there's a pretty good case it's like in in the psychology research for tabletop role-playing games being really good for social anxiety um, and other social-based mental afflictions Uh, and so if you are if you are comfortable enough as a dm to take a wallflower under your wing um, using a tabletop role-playing game is a really good way to help them sort of break in whether that is adding a friend to your friend group uh adding a stranger to your tabletop group um and and these are transferable skills so uh, a new intern at work um uh if you i'm sure that there is some lesson in here for parents with middle children um (laughs) but but yeah there's a lot there's a lot that tabletop games can do for wallflowers and there are lots of ways that wallflowers impact our tabletop games um who's next well i i guess my closing thoughts on the wallflower are just handle with care yeah yeah just make sure they're having fun i mean that's the and and i mean i know i'll i'll talk myers briggs right the, sure. the the personality um structure right i'm an believe it or not i'm an intj right i am super introverted so all of this social distancing i am all about the social distancing right I, stay the I hell am, away from me. i am part of that club brother um so 
if they're if they're just quiet and they're having a good time, like they're having a good time. Yes. I mean that's the it's thing okay too, to right? be a wallflower. Yeah, you don't have to try to okay. pull them off right. the wall. Right. Don't don't feel like you need to get these people involved. Now, there's I I'm I'm uh I'm guilty of this because I'm on my I was just on my phone. Um, but there is the distracted player who is not necessarily a wallflower. They behave like a wallflower, like they're not paying they, but that's a whole different. And I think we talked about that in episode two, the yes. distracted player. Um there's the wallflower I think is different. Yeah. There's yeah. the it, it's all sort of the, the mindset of it. So if you've got a player who's on their phone or isn't engaged because it's somebody else's story, then that is different than somebody who isn't engaging because they either your character wouldn't or that player isn't comfortable or right. somebody else is, has the spotlight and they're comfortable with it. I think there are lots of acceptable reasons to be a wallflower. Yep. All right. I'm sick of saying wallflower over and over again. Uh, so historian. So, so let's grow away from the wallflower. Let's let's uh, let's let that idea go to seed. Sorry, I keep Dude. doing the plant stuff. <laughs> the plant. So sorry. Uh, so let me talk about the historian. Yes, right? please do. So the historian um, is very much. I, I kind of put them in the same general. Close in that Venn diagram you're describing, they're closer to the method actor. Um, they may also be close to the tactician, uh, but they are looking for historical accuracy, uh, linear connection with canon. So uh, I've done this to my DM, right? Uh, we're talking about Drow, and as you know, I'm a huge, right, R.A. Salvatore. Uh, Ed Greenwood, Lisa Smedman it, fan. It's only episode eight. You've only talked about it eight times. <laughs> Time, right? I've even cursed in Drow on one of the episodes. Um, but so he need, he's like, so you're going to meet somebody from a Drow noble house. And I was like, awesome. What house? Uh, and it's <laughs> like, oh, be that house. Because if, if we're playing Dale Reckoning 1638, Chednazad, the city has fallen, and he's like, "Jack, just shut the hell up, <laughs> right?" But that's that's your historian, and and we see this in Five E, right? Because Five E has a very rich uh, fictional background where there are lots of fantasy authors providing lots of canon. Um, we see this in other games. You see this in Traveler, right? Traveler has a very detailed historical account of the third imperium and the fall of the third imperium and mega traveler and so on and so forth like there are games that have these very rich and detailed canons and the historian just sucks it up and loves it right um you uh, also you the historian depending on what and and you'll see historians pop up when you're playing uh and i know i'm not supposed to call it cthulhu like games that are based in reality or quasi-reality um world war ii games wild west games vampire the masquerade if you're playing vampire the masquerade in the 1990s right historians are all over like hey man 
the the cell phone the you got a pager you don't have a cell phone it's like oh yeah shit i don't have a cell phone no i'm gonna use my laptop and hook up to the internet it's like it's 1994 you got to dial up they're like oh damn that's right i have to dial up to the internet so so that's yeah, <laughs> yeah oh yeah <laughs> But but that's your historian. Now the pros of that, which again, right? I I outed myself as a method actor. Hi, my name is Jack, and I'm a serial historian. Hi, Jack. Um, the historian brings to the table that rich connection with the canon, and again can help with immersion and to get other folks who are not necessarily historically minded or all that wrapped up about the canon to give them a little bit more color and flavor for the game that they're playing. Word. Now the cons, right? Well, you mentioned one of them already. Oh, yeah. The cons <laughs> are that they are uh, strict adherence to things that have happened in the canon, right? Um, and... Same thing. I go as a DM or a GM. I go back to that tactician idea that I talked about. Like, so my my character is gonna get gonna do this thing. Um, it's like, well, you know, in this day and age, your character wouldn't do that. Or it's like, gosh, we gotta get guns. We were trying to buy guns in <laughs> Call of Cthulhu. We we're playing we we're playing 1920s Call of Cthulhu, and the guy's like, oh my god, we got we have to go buy some guns. And uh, and I was playing with some folks, uh, not Vermonters, right? Because here in Vermont, there's a gun store every corner. You just go down to the local gun store, you pick it up. Yep. Uh, and I said, well, it's 1929. So if you pick up the Sears and Roebuck catalog, you can order a Winchester 3030 or several different types of revolver. Oh, cut out there. Hold on. And they, and they looked at me and they're like, "Hey, you uh you, you Oh, am I still cutting out? Uh you're back now. I'm back now. Yep, Sears and Roebuck so catalog, Winchester 3030. Okay, so you so it's like it's 1929, fellas. Uh Sears and Roebuck catalog, you can buy firearms from the catalog. And they and they were like, "What?" It's like, "Yeah, as long as you've got the cash, um, you can buy that. And they're like, well, what about the background check? And it's like, fellas, it's 1929. <laughs> that doesn't exist. Uh, the, the National Firearms Act won't get signed for another few years. Like, you, you can buy machine guns through a mail-order catalog. And they're like, no shit. You're okay, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, unfortunately, you don't have the $74 that you need to send to Sears and Roebuck to get the Thompson submachine gun. So you're stuck with a Winchester 3030. Uh, it'll be here in two weeks. And they're like, oh, <laughs> we need it. It's like, what about FedEx? It's like, there's no such FedEx. thing as FedEx in 1929. U.S. Postal Service. This is pros, like, but we can air pros and but, cons and all at once. All at once, right? All at once. It, it brought that immersion to the table, right? But then it also was the well, what about this? Well, that, that doesn't exist in this time period. What about that? Oh, you, that's actually easier to do in this time period. It's easier to get opium in 1929 than it is in 1992. 
um, because, you know, and morphine is still legal. Cocaine is in is in soft drinks, soft drinks um, like these people don't know what these things are. So they're all kind of wrapped up together. Uh, and and that's so that's yeah. I, and that and that's again, it's a balance, right? If you have a hardcore historian who's way interested in history and being historically accurate and being true to canon, um, you can use them to help your game. Uh, but eventually, just like with the tactician, you've got to cut them off at some point so that other folks can can get something out of the game. Definitely. Or else it turns into an R.A. Salvatore book club. Right. <laughs> Which right? isn't the worst thing, but is no, not, not a D&D game. Thing, but, but that's, you don't want to have, like, we're walking through the jungles of, of uh, Port Naranzaru. Um, it's not Kalamashan. Now my... Chilt. Yeah, you're, you're walking through the jungles of Chilt. You're not having this big, long discussion about the fall of Ched Nazad in the Underdark because... None of the characters, except for one, even know what Chednazad is and why it's important that it fell, and nobody gives a crap. Yeah. <laughs> so then you reel your historian in. Hey, historian, shut the hell up and let other people play. <laughs> Are we ever going to get to the temple? Um, well, let right, me tell you. Right no, after this history lesson. Yeah, here's another history lesson. Do you know why this temple is the way that it is? Oh my God, shut up. <laughs> Right, so like some of that can be fun, and if you as the DM have a historian that likes to do that, and you've got some travel coming up, write up a little, this is about this temple for that character, send that to them before or secretly during the game, and let them share that information with people. Um, super easy little thing that you can do as a DM to make your historian a little happy. Right. Um, another, so from the, <clears throat> from the DM perspective, I wish that I had a hardcore historian at my, in my group because Well, then, so that's harder for you because you've got a homebrew campaign, right? Well, so you say it's harder, but I, I would love that because somebody would be asking the questions that I don't think to, that I need to, to create a fleshed out world. So I've got a timeline, and I've got, gosh, who knows how many pages worth of, oh, this happened then, and this was this little thing here and there, and piles of sticky notes with little, uh, you know, this wizard did this at this, kind of at this time. Um, so I've got lots of information like that uh, for my world, but I would love to have a, a, an historian, uh, because then I would get I would get to flesh it out more. Um, and as a DM who homebrews, I, I really like my players to want that. I, I like that my players are, hey, our backstories take place in this world, so give us a little more information. Okay, totally. Yes, I'm there. Um, I think I identified a lot tactician as my DM style, um, but I think historian is a close second or has a, a lot of overlap for me personally. Um, just because I like that level of depth in my homebrew. <clears throat> Fair enough. Um, okay, that's probably all right for historians. One of my personal favorites, min-maxers. You people drive me insane. 
Uh, there, there's, a, there's, there's a bit to unpack here. So the min-maxer player type is somebody who is scouring. A jerk. Somebody who is a jerk. No, 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 non, <laughs> non-judgmental. Remember, we're. Oh gosh, you know? you're killing me. No, I, I know. I don't want a DM listening to this to perhaps believe that one of their players is a min-maxer and start to microaggress towards them. The worst thing is when you feel like you're playing against your DM, and if your DM is doing small things to mess with just your character because you min-maxed, that's going to feel shitty. Um, so don't do that, please. Uh, although I do, I hear Jack's complaints and we'll address it. So the min-maxer is somebody who reads through uh, every bit of source book that they can so that they can find out how to do the things that they want to do the best numerically. Um, so min-maxers are very concerned with the crunch of games uh, and not so much the fluff. We've talked about that before a bit. And so I've got... I wouldn't call him a min-maxer. I would call him a pseudo-optimizer. Um, but he has... I, I've got a player who is playing a uh, Hexblade Warlock and he is built his entire character around chasing crits. Like, if he can get a crit, he can deal 80-plus damage in uh, in one attack. But he has to have everything set up and get that crit. Otherwise, he's not... He does fair damage, but he isn't super used. So I call him a pseudo-optimizer because he isn't min-maxing to the point where I feel like I need to change what I'm doing as a DM. Um but he has optimized his character to do something, and because I am an insightful DM, I have I have caught this and am DMing for him appropriately. So getting pretty ahead of myself. Um, Min-maxers want high numbers for the things that they want to be good at. So if you are... I, I, I don't have it in front of me, but I okay. have looked at it in the past six months. Uh, there was a chart floating around on one of the D&D subreddits that was average damage per round per various different character setups and builds. And in 5e, at the time of that, because I know there's been some Unearthed Arcana stuff released and, and whatnot, but um, a Eldritch Blast Warlock could do the most DPR, or DPR, damage per round. Um, <clears throat> so if you wanted to be the high damage character, you would go look up Broken Warlock Eldritch Blast builds, and you would build your character around that. Um, the pros of min-maxers, because I'm sure that you're going to rip through all the cons... Yeah, I'm glad the cameras are not on, because you'd see my teeth grinding. <laughs> The pros of min-maxers is that it can be... If they don't do it in a way that is game-breaking or awful for the DM to deal with, like my warlock who is a pseudo-optimizer, um, it can be good for you as the DM to have players that you know are good at things and are really good at things. That's okay. As a rogue, you should be really good at being quiet 
more likely than not, so I would expect you to have a plus 11 in stealth by level 5 or 6, like, uh, maybe not, maybe not that much, no, maybe, what, 8 or 9, but it, it's good to have people who are good at things, and as long as that's not game-breaking or frustrating, it's okay. Um, I think another pro of min-maxers is that they understand mechanically how the game works very well, and they can help speed things along a little bit. Um, I think the case that you are going to bring up is a combination of min-maxing and tacticianing, where you've got somebody who has all the numbers, and they want the battle mat in front of them so that they can count out the 30 feet so that they know that they can hit the target with their longbow, and it's going to deal all sorts of damage. Um, so, cons? Cons? So, I'll, I'll be very honest with you. With severe min-maxing, I am not micro-aggressive. I am open, bald-faced aggressive with those types of players um, as a DM because I, again, I'm a historian. I'm a method actor. I'm somewhat of a tactician. I, I think the the min maxer character for me, player, uh, player, the min maxer, or well, the player who generates min max characters, right? Yes. Um, it is is the that 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 bends if not breaks the game for me because Ooh. if you are. Um, and I'm talking about severe, not not like, okay, I'm a rogue and I put all, everything I have into decks and stealth and backstab. That that, that makes sense, right? You, and and you, you were alluding to that. So the the big min-maxers, though, who... And I'm thinking, again, I'm, I'm not thinking 5e. I'm thinking of other systems like GURPS, where um, I'm, a, I'm a spy and I have massive talents in computer hacking and flying aircraft and uh, using a sniper rifle, but I have an odious personal habit and I'm in debt and I'm in... So they've taken all these disadvantages so that they can max out their advantages. Um, when I'm GMing characters like that, um, I am not afraid to call them out when they're in a situation um that their character would be bad at does that make sense like if you and and we're gonna get we're probably gonna get into this when we get into the murder hobo chaos stupid type player um but that player who has so finely tuned that warlock so that they can deliver the eldritch blast um but they have no well warlocks have charisma uh they have no survival nature perception. Like when they roll perception, they you didn't see it. I'm sorry. Well, but it's daylight, and I'm. It's like yeah, but you know, you're so busy thinking about all the things you're gonna do in the Eldritch Blast. You, you, didn't, <laughs> you, you know, you, you're, you're so busy daydreaming about your Eldritch Blast that you don't see it. Or you. Or you've Eldritch blasted so much that you've got spots in front of your eyes, and you—I'm you, sorry, you just didn't—you didn't. That's see. a good one. Yeah. See, 
Um, so I shouldn't say that I'm actively aggressive against min-maxers. It just uh, role play again as a method actor player. What makes sense for that character, right? And even if you look at archetypes from Appendix N, if you look at, um, like I'm reading again, I'm rereading Fafford and the Gray Mouser because I friggin' love Fritz Lieber stories, um, right? They are not that. Yeah, they're thieves and they're scoundrels and they're pretty much rogues. But there's a little bit of magic in there, and they've got some personality. Um, they're not just when when I think min maxer, I think of I, I I really I go back to video games, right? Yes. Uh, yep. And 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 min maxing. You and I have played World of Warcraft together. You know that min maxing also messes. I, I don't like that in in those games either uh, right it takes the fun out of playing it's like okay you're crowd control frost mage you cast this spell and three seconds later you cast this spell and right after that prox you cast this it's like what you know i could write a lua program that plays this character in this raid this isn't fun anymore yes yeah once you so, sort of calculate it all the way through that's why i said that you know having a min maxer plus a tactician in one person can be dangerous very dangerous um, yes yeah <clears throat> i i think it it really depends on the degree of min maxing that somebody is doing um <clears throat> but i i think i i wanted to defend it and i think that i did but I, I think agree. you did. You did. A, you did a good job because you knew I was coming out guns blazing for it. <laughs> and and because I agree with you that mid maxers, I would put right on the line between player types and problem players, um, because having somebody who is hardcore mid maxing makes it harder for everyone else at the table. Uh, so here here we go. If you've got a uh, a tank barbarian who is min-maxing, they're going to have a massive hit point pool. And as a DM, if you have other people who are playing fun characters and you've got a, <clears throat> a fighter who rolled their stats organically and has a 9 constitution, um, it is difficult to design an encounter that will be challenging or engaging for the barbarian at all without being deadly to that fighter uh so i well that I, that I, that's where your method actors are gonna save you by saying <clears throat> hey conan go kick the crap out of those guys we're gonna sit here and have a beer and watch and if you really get into trouble you know uh gimli over there will throw a couple heels at you and 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 you get it <laughs> It turns again. It it turns the game more into like a WoW raid, and not there's nothing. I'm not denigrating World of Warcraft raiding. It's a blast. I had a lot of fun doing it back in the day. <laughs> yeah, uh, back in the day is the keyword there. Well, I just I mean I, I still I still play Neverwinter and I still do end game content in Conan Exiles. Like I I'm still doing those types of activities, um, but it turns into a like every single fight with that type of party 
is going to be rinse repeat. You're going you as a DM are going to have to be like you were saying, I've got to create this encounter. Maybe it's the barbarian falls down a hole and gets swarmed by a whole bunch of these uh, goblins and the two or three that stayed up to make sure that he, he got he, he got tricked into running into the hole, start fighting the other party members. But you've, oh, you, you as the DM, have to architect a situation like that, um, where, you know, you, you can you can do that. Yeah, it gets a little bit harder to balance. Um, a min maxer at the table could make other players feel like their characters aren't effective, which those players will say, "Oh, my character isn't as good," or "My character isn't as cool." um which is 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 bad i think um well then that's that's where you as the dm have to architect the the story arc or work the 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 adventure so yep it's a it's a smash and bash the barbarian's been beating the snot out of all of these goblins and he kicks down the door and there's a puzzle or there's a secret door and he can't roll good perception because he's statted way beyond in other places and his perception or his religion is just terrible. There's right? an into there's an intellect devourer all of a sudden. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> or something along those lines where yes, that min maxer is built for this specific thing. Um give the party something that is 180 degrees away from that specific thing right <clears throat> and that's why so i again i'm just going to caution min maxing when taken to a high degree becomes dangerous min maxing when it is a uh pseudo optimizing kind of thing like with my crit chasing warlock that can be okay and it can be so here's a pro for min-maxing. A player who is really good at something is going to have those epic moments. And if you, as a DM, look at the character sheet and are like, oh, this person is... Uh, it's all athletics, acrobatics, uh, survival, animal handling. They're going to... You'll, you'll be able to... It'll give you a cue as to how to create encounters, puzzles, fights, quests... Mm -hmm that give them an opportunity to do those things. So your super acrobatic wizard <clears throat> may not be great at casting spells, but you are you need to climb a vine to get into a tree to avoid a stampede in the jungle and you zip right up that and then you start swinging across trees like freaking Tarzan in your pointed wizard cap and now everyone's laughing and having fun and it's it can be it can be good. And and there are systems that um, are designed to kind of stop that, right? So yeah. so we we've been again we've been very five e uh, Pathfinder Starfinder like focused, but if if we move down the bookshelf here and look at something like RuneQuest Glorantha or Call of Cthulhu. Those mechanical systems reward you for the skills that you use during the game versus just, hey, man, you leveled up where you want to put your points. Right. So so if if you are someone like me who isn't necessarily a big fan of aggressive min-maxers, uh, those systems are worth checking out because you, 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 I'm a gangster and I got a Tommy gun and, okay, cool, but... 
during this session, you spent a lot of time on a boat. So, you know, your boating skill just increased. You know, what about my Tommy gun skill? It's like, did you shoot anybody this session? No. It's like, well, you know, no, I'm sorry. Your marksmanship doesn't improve because you didn't practice it. Like next game session, if you want your marksmanship to improve, you know, find a place, find a gun range or, or find some enemies and start shooting at them. And if that happens, great. Your your marksmanship will improve. If if we're still on the boat and you know you spend some time on this, uh, let's say it's a riverboat, right? You spend some time on the riverboat gambling. Well, now your boating and your gambling skills just went up. So um, there are systems that kind of curtail that concept of the of the min max. Sure. And yeah. uh, I will add as a DM tool for dealing with min maxers. Um, you can sort of curb some of that in your session zero, where depending on how you are doing character creation, character creation is, is where a lot of this starts. Um, yep. and if you are in session zero and you want, if you know somebody at your table is going to min max, cause you don't want to assume that everybody is going to, um, but if you've got somebody who you know will, Instead of doing point by, for example, in 5e, you could just assign people, all right, everybody's going to get the, the standard rule, 16, 15, 14, uh, 12, 10, 12, 11, 10, 12, 10, 9, whatever you want it to be. Um, right. Give them those values and say, here you go. Or you can do the organic die rolling where you roll, roll four, drop the lowest, and then assign that in the order that you roll it after you pick your race and class right you're the barbarian with nine strength like kind of sucks but it's going to be a fun character to role play um but again and that all of that we haven't is session zero stuff right and we haven't talked about character creation and how the dm can help shape that i mean we did a little bit with session zero in the first show but um some some of those times i mean some of the best characters i've played um I rolled the the roll four drop the lowest, um, and I I kind of follow the dungeon crawl classic uh, Iron Man. You like I'm rolling strength, oh nine. I'm rolling this, like and I and I I, I think I rolled a fifteen for charisma. Um, I had terrible constitution. All the other die rolls were just terrible, um, and I made. I mean, this fabulous bard, he was a blast to play. He was a half-orc bard. Since he was such a weakling and so sickly, they put him in the back with the drum to to beat out a marching cadence. And they put him in the back because they knew he was weak and slow. Um, and it just it just turned into this really great character to play. Eventually, he got sick of being the, the runt of the tribe and left, and he found a mentor that helped him into the bard's college and he discovered the hammered dulcimer so he was walking around with a little hammered dulcimer playing music for the for the party and it was it was a blast he was a great to play but it was one of those you know this is how i'm putting this character together and sure i could have moved points around and i could have min maxed him out and but um it's the it was but again flaws in the characters that make them memorable and different Yes. Yeah. And if you're super good at the things that you think you need to be super good at, um, then it's like, nah, you know, I... it's far more epic 
when the wizard with a nine strength rolls a nat 20 to move the boulder because your barbarian with an 18 strength rolled a nat one and broke his foot. Like, right. That, yes. That's those a pretty the... great moment for a group. And you don't yes. get those yeah. if everybody's min maxing. No, because everyone just rolls. Yep. I got, I, I rolled a 12. Yeah. 12 plus nine. I still hit him. And now I'm going to roll the damage. That's a D 12 plus seven. Yep. He's dead. Like, okay, cool. You know, you right, get into go, that. Go play Diablo three, like. Right. Yeah. All right. Yep. Enough min maxing right. for now. Um, you mentioned it, chaotic, stupid murder hobo. We introduced this idea last episode uh, when we were talking about alignment. Um, chaotic, stupid is a endearing term for players <laughs> who tend to make characters who are chaotic, neutral, chaotic, good. Or, yeah, or chaotic evil, I guess. Um, chaotic but the... neutral, I think, where a lot of folks start out, and then they just do. And so, so again, I, I don't have a problem with this character type or this player type if you are in the right setting. Okay. Or if you are trying, if you are trying to make it through um, Tomb of Annihilation or curse of strahd uh the chaotic stupid murder murder hobo is is gonna break the game but if you're playing um portal under the stars in dungeon crawl class if you're playing any dungeon crawl classic game um man game on this this is the type of person you need at the table right pointy end of the sword goes into whoever's in front of me if they have money take their money find somebody else with money pointy end of the sword goes right i mean that's i'm i'm being a little facetious with dungeon crawl classic there are puzzles and there are things to figure out and it's a little bit more involved than just you know kill people and take their stuff um it's it's more than a um what's the card game from c jackson games munchkin right oh yeah it's a step up from munchkin but not very far (laughs) It's, Uh, it's a munchkin step it's a Munchkin. It's a it's a Munchkin step away from Munchkin to get to Dungeon Crawl Classic. <laughs> but uh, and and yeah, the chaotic stupid. I I think and again, uh, I, this is opinion, and I am not a trained psychologist by any stretch of the imagination, right? I'm a historian and a literature major for crying out loud. Um, but I think people take on these roles with characters just to test doing something they would never do in real life. Yeah. Right? Yeah, well, that's so... I I mentioned earlier that there was a wealth of research around tabletop role-playing games, and there uh, is an article that I've got in my portfolio. I I have a a section... Not a binder, but a collection of selected research articles, Um, and there are are a couple in there that are talking about uh, tabletop role-playing games and gender identity, where it can be a, a safe, acceptable place to try out being somebody different. Um, and it can be an acceptable place to try out doing things that are different. Um, some of the groups that I ran in my professional career have been for mental health groups. Um, and those are youth, youths, youths, uh, ages you know, 12 to 22 who have emotional regulation problems. And if you're hanging out with them in a classroom, 
oh, if somebody got in my face, I'd fucking nail him and I'd, I'd kill him and, sh like, all sorts of ridiculous stuff. Um, and so if you want to help work through emotional regulation, you can use something like D&D uh, to let them experience sort of the consequences of those actions. Uh, and sure. So, so, yes, I... I don't like using chaotic stupid as the the phrase to describe that, but but D and D can be a good place to explore things that you wouldn't do in real life. I mean, that's that's gaming, right? And 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 I think it can be a a release for people who have a nine to five or an eight to eight to four thirty, right? They they have a lifestyle. It's got a bunch of rules. They have things that they have to accomplish. They have relationships real relationships they have to maintain with spouses and co-workers and friends and yada yeah, yada yada norms and expectations and... right and and you know monday night i get to sit down at the table and i get to be this nasty mean little pink-haired gnome who's gonna cut you if you look sideways at her um so i have i do engage in the murder hobo uh arena no, I try not no, to. No, no, because you're you're not a murder hobo about it. You're not. Oh, somebody's in front of me. Fireball. You are. You your character and you the player are intelligent and are very particular and careful about who you stab with your poison before you later yeah. sneak into their room and skin their feet. We get it. She's terrifying. 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 But but I have played the murder hobo role before and and again i mean if, oh, if you play and, and if you and a lot of people that's how they start dnd right they they come to I me mean, i came to dnt dnd in the 1980s there was no such thing as world of warcraft or diablo or any of those things so this was the outlet right and and if you read keep on the borderlands the the module b2 that came with all the basic dnd books it is basically a a box canyon in the middle of nowhere with a bunch of caves with random tribes of bugbears and orcs and goblins and the whole module there's there's no story there is i'm going into this closest cave and there's a really big bugbear i don't think i can take him i'm going to sneak out of that cave and i'm going to go to a cave that looks a little bit smaller cool there's a goblin with a stick yeah we're on boom <laughs> Um, but that that module and and we have I've never got to run that for you guys. That's one of the modules I want to run for for you guys when we play the dad guilts us on Father's Day into role play games. Um, <laughs> you just have to guilt the girls, right? And and then we can play that module B two, and you can kind of see what it was like in 1984 when I discovered the the game. Um, we kind of did that with DCC. Um, with the portal under the stars, which was a lot of fun, but that was also yeah. kind of a murder hobo. Like I won't ruin the module for folks, but there's, there's a room, there's a bad guy, beat the bad there's, guy. Up. There's so a, there's room, less. There's... I, I, we, keep, we keep saying like murder hobo as though that is a descriptor for an adventure. And in saying that, I think that what we mean is campaigns that don't have a lot of need for RP. So like, my my buddy's alt campaign is a dungeon grinder. We are uh, stuck in the labyrinth of a crazy wizard fighting things at his will. 
So, like, we could choose to sit in one of the rooms and RP the whole session, but the the module or adventure is not geared towards that being important or needed. Um, right. So I, I just wanted to, to clarify that. And, and yeah, we keep talking. I, and I, I, I apologize. I keep talking about the adventure being murder hobo-ish. There are, there are players who basically the answer to every situation is violence and loot the body. Right. We just arrived right. in Barovia. I'm gonna light the village on fire, and that'll get Strahd's attention. <laughs> um, wait a minute. There's like 700 people in that village, and you're gonna leave them all homeless? Like, what do you think's gonna happen? Oh, nothing. They're gonna think I'm the biggest, baddest wizard because I can cast fireballs. Like, well, yeah, you can right. cast fireballs. I can cast fireball. <laughs> after, after you're after you're out of level three spell slots, like, what are you gonna do, buddy? Well, I'm gonna run. It's like. <laughs> Hope you're faster than the people in. Hope there isn't a monk in that town, or your goose is cooked. <laughs> right? Yeah, right. Uh, but but that's yeah. So so this is the character that is. I don't want to say acting out, but it looks a lot like acting out, or the character that thinks that violence is the answer. Um, the reason I'm glad that you put it really close to the min max character because if you get a combat min maxer, they pretty much fit into this category of like okay well, no no no, no. I, I, no that's a little too they can fit into this category they can okay so that's a little too yeah so they can fit into it um and that's that's a that's an attractive place for them to go because right if we're in the tavern and the um we're in the tavern, and the bartender says says an off-color joke, or the bartender says he doesn't like serving dwarves, and I'm the dwarf barbarian, so boom, right? I'm gonna I'm gonna smack him. Um, that's that. And so for those folks, I think for me as a DM, if it's if it's not acute, right? If it's not every every situation is solved with violence. I'll give them their outlet, right? Sure. I'll, I'll give them, yep, a couple of muggers come by and they're going to mug you. Uh, oh, good. Now I can beat the crap out of the muggers and take their stuff. Okay, good. Now we can go on to something else. Um, if it's acute and it's creating problems, same thing I do with the min-maxer. I give them a social situation. I give them a Kobayashi Maru. It's an old Star Trek um, call out there, but the... There are there are a dozen town guards, and the constable is ringing the bell to call out the militia. <laughs> uh, and there's three of you. What do you want to do? It's like, I'm going to fight my way out. You're going to die. Um, or you're going to get subdued, and then you're going to get put in front of the magistrate who's going to ask you why the hell you keep killing guards in the town you're allegedly supposed to be defending. So, hmm. Right. How do you deal with murder hobos in your at your table? Okay, so this is going to sound unbelievable. But I don't know that I've ever had to deal with one that was creating enough of a problem. And and like I said, I worked with with individuals who had these who who were closer to murder hobos in real life 
than they were in the game. Right. And, and so I I think in those cases that that was kids who, you know, wanted to fit in and belong and have a good space, but being frustrated and angry is their defense mechanism in real life. And at the table, it's not their real life, so they don't need that defense mechanism. So right. they don't just hit... And, and sometimes they did a little bit, right? They would, like, oh, you, you find a an axe, but it's frozen to the workbench because you're a mile underground at the northernmost mountain in the world. Oh, I'm just going to beat on it with my Warhammer. All right, you spend a couple of minutes beating on it, your Warhammer cracks. Oh, all right, fine, I'll stop. Like, sometimes... Yeah just little hard stops that stop an action but that mm-hmm. don't stop uh you know the motivations of the character right so that character wants things they solve problems with their warhammer if i need to communicate to them as the dm that this is a problem that can't be solved with the warhammer then i'll do something like your warhammer cracks or like you said present them social situations like you guys can talk to the chief of this orc tribe. You dropped out, my friend. Oh, am I still here? Have you got me? I'm going to keep going because I have the recording on my side anyway. Uh, so. Oh, sorry. I'm, I've am i got the recording on my side, so I'm going to keep going. Perfect. Keep going. All right. Yeah, I just lost you for a second. <clears throat> nope, that's okay. Um, you, you're talking to the, the chief of this orc village. You can get some information about that frozen cave you're going to go into. Or if you want to try to solve the problem with your Warhammer, you could fight them, but it's a village of like 60 orcs and you're four adventurers. So like even people who play the murder hobo chaotic stupid don't necessarily want, they're not looking to kill their character. So right with reason with a reasonable world presenting a rational world around them um you can help those players make not make decisions that you want them to make but stop making the decisions that are hurting the table right and if right. everyone at your table is cool with that and wants that experience then do it right like we've been saying the whole time if it's fun do right. it yes get keep on the borderland from goodman games and play it and yeah, just there you go um so a couple so more uh, we'll wrap these up uh noobs uh new players new characters uh new yeah. players sorry um so new players tend to in my experience tend to wallflower more than anything else um yeah. or they tend to go the like complete opposite of min max like fun fun i guess i would call that sure um yep these are new new players don't have a grasp of all the mechanics and all the rules and they're like i want to be an orc wizard it's like but you get a minus to your intelligence and you get bonuses to strength and career you should be no i want to be a orc wizard like um you know everybody knows what a noob is somebody who hasn't played a whole lot of games um, sure. Pros of noobs is that as a DM, it can be a good confidence boost. Uh, if you're yeah. experiencing uh, some imposter syndrome, then you might play with a group of newer players to sort of help yourself figure out that you really do know what you're doing. Um, you they're, can get they're a 
good ground for rules lawyers. So if your rules yeah. lawyers is throwing a lot of energy, that new player will suck up a lot of that energy asking questions and getting advice and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yep, definitely. Um, you get those players who want to build, you know, cha chaotic fun characters, um, and you get to see some things that maybe you don't always get to, uh, or you get a weird party and you have to design some encounters that are kind of weird too. Um, the cons of new players. Oh, go ahead. Nope. I was gonna just throw out the, the the dwarf druid that grows mushrooms. Yeah, there you go. Right. That's, that 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 is allergic to beer. I, I don't know. Right. Like, <laughs> something nothing like that. Yeah. Something weird. So what's the con? Uh, cons of noobs can be that it it can be frustrating as an experienced DM if you just want them to get through your adventure and they are plugging away looking at things and doing things that don't really matter. Um, if you bring a new player to a table of experienced players, um, it can create a little bit of tension because those players have sort of an expectation of how the game will go. Uh, obviously, talk to players before bringing people in or out. Um, and if you've got a good group, hopefully they are on board with bringing more people into the D&D and tabletop gaming fold. Um, yeah. cons can be that, uh, they slow games down. They're asking a lot of questions, but as a DM, like you said, if you've got a rules lawyer or a tactician at the table, or even a min-max pseudo optimizer, um, they can, can pull some of the energy from other people, which helps you as the DM keep your energy for running the game. Um, yeah. I like playing with so, new people. I really there, do. John. I'm going to stop you there and I'm going to move you to the next thing because that's what we got to do right now in this podcast. I got to move you to the next topic right away because, you know, that's what I'm here for. So who am I? Are you? Uh, you're, you're, you're plugging for alpha gamers. I um, am plugging for alpha gamers, right? <clears throat> and that's, that's, that's the last one we have here on the list. Um, and that's, that's what I identify as when I'm a player. Yes, you are an alpha gamer. You, that's I wanted to alpha game you at least once in this podcast, and yeah, I yeah. finally got to do it. You got it. <laughs> um, we introduced alpha gamers in episode two when we were talking about uh, problem players. Um, yes. Yeah. So, so an alpha gamer is somebody who wants sp speaking as one. An alpha gamer is somebody who wants a degree of control or a degree of understanding over the game environment, so much so that they are likely the most experienced or well-informed person at the table. Um, it is it is called an alpha gamer because it's like the, the alpha male football jock jerk. Um, I think that gamer people... And this is totally personal bias, but in my lifetime of experience, gamers tend to be nicer people than athletes. Um, totally observational. I, I would not be surprised to get flack for that, but that's that's what I've seen. Um, I was going to say, wait a minute, we're supposed to be non-judgmental here tonight. <laughs> I'd, I'd, so I didn't say that with judgment, but that's, you know, my observation. Um, okay. The... the pros of alpha gamers is that we make fantastic dms because we want all of the tactics all of the rules all of the history all of the min max figured out ahead of time so if you like to do all of that 
and you're a player at a table and you're not having all that much fun, consider DMing, because that is totally your wheelhouse. Um, and as for players who are alpha gamers, uh, the pros are similar to some of the other ones. That, I think alpha gamers are um, magnitudes of the players that we've already talked about taken up one or two. So a method so actor, I, I you... Actually... Oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I, I actually, in some instances, like the alpha gamer um, because they can help the party stay focused and move along the story. They, they do all of those things, right? So they, like method actors, they create immersion. They want to be there. They want to be up front. They help bring the world together and they care about the world. They're going to be tactical about things because they want that understanding or control. Like, is it 50 feet to the bridge or is it 100 feet to the bridge? Well, it's less than 100, but it's more than 40. Like, okay, that, I can go off of that, but I needed something. Um, but the, the, the just the risk with the alpha gamer is that they start to suck up all the oxygen at the table. Well, right. so they can. Right. I, I, I think that oftentimes alpha gamers will sort of find their way into a leadership role within a group. Um, and I think they make decisions more independently than other player types. Mm -hmm. So that can create cons. I was very, I tried to be. Um, I played in the alien game that you ran. We talked about that a few sessions back. And I tried yep. really hard not to alpha game too much. But there were points in there where be me being the marine with the gun playing alien, I was like, this is what I'm going to go do. Like, this is the plan, folks. Are you, are you with me or are you against me? Um, right. And... and and that's, you know, and, and that's, again, we said this right at the beginning of this, is that there is no one space, right? I mean, it right. made sense when the xenomorphs started showing up and the shoosting started. Ah, <laughs> shoosting! Um, so the, anyway, I the, just started blasting. The marine with the gun is the guy that you're going to put in front. When you get to the medical bay and there's some sciencey stuff to do, Right, the marine with the gun, who's the you were retired, right? You you were a janitor. You were a retired, yes, marine, retired marine, who was a janitor, then janitor, right? And now, so once you're in the medical bay and they have sciencey medical stuff to do, you you take a back seat, right? Um, which you did, and and you did you did fine in that game. Um, I I didn't have to though. I could have gone into that med lab and started shooting. You could have, or you could have gone into the, and this is, I guess this is where the alpha gamer, uh, the cons of the alpha gamer start to manifest themselves. You're the, you're a janitor. You're there with, uh, a corporate executive and a doctor and a robot. You go into the science lab and you start bossing them around. Hey, science guy, go do science things. Hey, robot, go guard the door. Hey. And it's like, Hey, wait a minute. You're the janitor. Like these people aren't even going to like. They're the, they they call you when someone spills their coffee. They're not going to start taking orders from you. Um, now, 
of course, you could say, well, I have the gun. You're going to take orders from the guy with the gun. And that would have had a really good dramatic scene, right? That's very alien. That's a very um, alien type thing. You know, the the janitor with the gun has gotten to the end of his rope and he's going to just start bossing these suits around and they're going to do something or he's going to shoot them. Um, that, would, that would have been very cool. Sure. Um, but it, that and me as the as the game mother, that's definitely where I would have vectored that 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 uh if that had happened but it didn't happen because you were you were good about not alpha gaming the whole time through <laughs> i am aware that i have alpha gamer tendencies so i i think when i say alpha gamer i am leaning towards uh somebody who steps into a leadership role so i've got somebody who is playing the the charisma bard in my group and i wouldn't call him an alpha gamer necessarily i'd put him closer to the method actor section but he definitely has some alpha gamer vibes from time to time um and as long as somebody is aware of that enough to to not jump into it a hundred percent uh i think alpha gamers on average can be more helpful than hurtful um, if everybody at the table was an alpha gamer it'd be an awesome group <laughs> I don't know. I, I think you might run into some conflicts. I think you would, but it would be like character-to-character character conflicts because the players are playing their characters so well, you know? And and yeah. we t introduced Alpha Gamers on the, the Problem Players episode, so yeah, you, you just want to curtail that if it becomes harmful. But right. like with everything, if players at your table are having fun, then you're all set. So that's the rule. Um, use all of this responsibly and um, and take it all with a grain of salt since it is opinion based and, and that sort of it. Yeah. So, whew, all right. Uh, it's been a long episode. I wasn't thinking that we would have that much to talk about, but talking about people is like kind of great and very easy to do. So that's that's um, your thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, if you have any questions about any of these player types or if you want to hear us talk about uh, a different kind of player type or talk more about a player type, uh, or if you'd like to just comment on the show, ask a question, uh, have a question read, whatever, that sort of thing, uh, feel free to tweet at us. I am at jmscoda5, and you can tweet at redhoodiegames. Um, and if you are listening on YouTube, please give us a like. Uh, you can check out redhoodygames5.wordpress.com for alternating weekly content updates. Uh, I have missed the past two, I think, um, due to some uh, adjustments in my personal life due to all this pandemic nonsense. Um, you guys to call <laughs> No, but I'm working from home, and I had to figure all of that out, and it's just been... Just been a little busy and discordant. Um, yep. So if you'd like to support us, not that this is a, a good time for anybody too, but it's a great time to be supported, uh, please go to patreon.com slash SCOTA. That's S-K-O-D-A. Uh, if you have listened, tuned in, uh, participated at all, thank you very much, and we uh, would love to have you here next time. So that's going to do it. This has been Set the Table, Episode 8 on Player Types Type... Uh, player... Oh, gosh messed it up at the intro and i'm messing up the outro at set least you're table... consistent yeah right set the table episode eight player types part two we'll see you next time good day